Hey everyone, Zach here. Uh, wanted to let you know that we have a special treat for you. Uh, our friends and Comics XF sister podcast, uh, WMQ and A, are having a special interview this week uh, with X Men '92 writer Steve Fox. Figured y'all might be interested in hearing some of that, so get ready to listen to Dan and Matt uh, talk to Steve about his upcoming book. And you know what? If you have a chance, why don't you go to the WMQ&A feed and subscribe? Because it's a really fun podcast with some great interviews with some awesome creators just like Steve Fox. Go check it out and enjoy the episode. WMQ&A. Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the upcoming X-Men 92, House of 92 from Marvel, and Archer and Armstrong Forever from Valiant. Please welcome back Steve Fox. What's up, Steve? Thank you for having me. Hello. And, and uh, good job figuring out House of 92, because I, I have to explain that to someone like every other day. It, it, the, the not going to lie when it was announced, it took me a minute. <laughs> I, you know, I pitched it that way, uh, kind of as a joke. And then when I got the first cover and they're like, yeah, here we go. I was like, oh, you, you kept that. Cool. Okay. <laughs> you know, as long as you're not doing like the weird, like the, the Hickman thing where you can't tell whether it's supposed to be an X or a 10 <laughs> or, you know, it can be both or like I, with I X may... lives and 10 deaths or whatever a Wolverine. I'm like, Percy, what are you doing, man? <laughs> I may have taken a, a fun, uh, gentle pot shot at that in the series as, as it goes along. <laughs> uh excellent and uh yeah these are these are exciting times but let's let's start with the important question how's the dog the dog is great um my so my partner and i moved in january and the dog loves the new apartment it's a little quieter here and she's got a lot more carpet to enjoy so she's she's having a grand old time excellent we love to hear it (laughs) so uh, every podcast should start with a an animal update I, you know, it, it's, it's a regular part of the show, but especially with returning guests, you know, we like to <laughs> like to get to the meat of the matter. <laughs> ah, but uh, yeah, so for, for readers who uh, are unfamiliar, uh, Steve has a comic coming out this week as we release it, uh, X-Men 92, House of 92, XCII, Roman numerals, <laughs> uh, that uh, is mashing together the classic X-Men cartoon and the current Grokoan age. Uh, with artist Salva Espin, colorist Israel Silva, letterer Joe Sabino, and designer Jay Bowen. Uh, I'm going to read the uh, the pitch blurb real quick for the listeners. Uh, everyone's favorite 90s incarnations of the X-Men have returned, but this time everything is even all newer and mo- all more different. Uh, Mutant Kind is taking a huge leap forward by founding their own nation on the island of Krakoa, guided by Professor X, Magneto, and a mysterious long-lived woman who knows more than she should. That's right, the 90s X-Men are tackling the Krakoan age 30 years early. And it's not going to go the way you expect. Uh, I, yeah, I can guarantee that. We are not going to get into spoilers today, but uh, yeah. Uh, but let's let's start at the beginning. How did this all come together? What is the origin of this project? So uh, starting at the very beginning, um, I was an intern at Marvel Comics in 2009. Somewhere, yeah, 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. I interned. For Jordan White, many years before he was in the X-Men office, uh, and we stayed in touch over the years. And when Spider-Ham came out, um, he dropped me a line to let me know he read it, the Spider-Ham graphic novel I did with Shadia Amin at Scholastic. 
And then a couple of weeks later, um, he sent me an email ask, or he sent me a DM first asking for my email. And I was like, okay, so don't get your hopes up. He's probably going to ask you for like restaurant recommendations or how to get in touch with another friend. Like I had my, my expectations very managed. Um, and really ukulele repair shop. Yeah. Ukulele repair shop suggestions for his next covers. Um, he wanted to contribute to razor blades. Yeah. (laughs) You'd be surprised uh, how many times I think I'm getting a a good email for me. And it turns out to be a backdoor ask for razor blades. Um, so yeah, I really, the wildest dream I had at that point was like, Oh, maybe there's an opportunity to do like a short backup or something. And then he he laid it on me that he was looking for someone to do a 30th anniversary miniseries for X-Men 92. And he thought I'd be a good fit for it. And he came with the very broad idea of maybe this is crazy, but what if you tried to do Krakoa for 1992? And it, it wasn't an edict, but I love the current line so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just has like, so energized me as a reader and as a longtime mutant fan um, that I, I did not even consider other pitches. I just got straight to work on trying to figure out how to fit dozens and dozens of issues into five issues in a satisfactory way. Because that's the other thing. I think people, when the first solicit came out, figured we were just adapting House of X. But no, this covers anything that has come out. And even a few things that haven't come out that I've just read early are fair game for this miniseries. That is, that is amazing. That is exciting. Uh, so what is your, do you have a personal connection to the cartoon? Did you watch it growing up or are Matt and I just old? <laughs> I did watch it growing up. I, and, you know, this is not like me saying this for the sake of PR or romanticizing mm-hmm. it. I do not think I would be the person I am today without the X-Men. My earliest, although, so to be fair, my earliest memory was Pride of the X-Men. Sure. The one shot pilot they did before X-Men, the animated series. Um, And I got that VHS when I was probably three or four years old and just wore it out. Uh, And that was around the same time that the first Toy Biz toys started coming out and Mm -hmm. I, I genuinely have every action figure they put out under the Marvel license. Um, getting to see that breadth of character, you know, everyone from like Grizzly and Kane to, <laughs> you know, Storm and Rogue and the heavy hitters. But as a kid, not having read a lot of those comics firsthand, they were all stars to me. I was like, oh, Sunfire's the coolest character. Grizzly's the coolest character. Comcast <laughs> is the coolest character. Like, you know, I had no idea. So it really that ignited my passion for comics for the x-men for sequential storytelling really all of it mm-hmm. um so yeah it's, it's no understatement to say that like this book is is a pinch me moment at every <laughs> like every <laughs> junction i can't believe i'm getting the chance to do this and like i i told jordan i was like you know i hope i get to do more for you guys but if i don't this was a pretty good outing <laughs> like <laughs> i couldn't have asked for better right on uh, so uh, one of our, our Twitter followers, uh, Asimov Fangirl, wanted to know whether any of us had a, a particular favorite line uh, from the show or something that's always stuck out to them or something they find themselves saying, you know, just random intervals. I can go first if you'd like. If you got uh, one, yeah. Yeah. So I, I will say I am 
horrible at remembering direct quotes but my sure. favorite thing to do is say anything in the storm voice from the show <laughs> like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know th- that void voice actress just put such a stamp on the character and the dialogue they had her delivering of like winds and rain it's just like it's so memorable and mm-hmm. little child me that was completely imprinted upon um, so she's my favorite like dramatic voice to hear in my head that that is a good one matt you got one Oh yeah, it, it, the the uh, Days of Future Past. Right at the end of the first part, of Days of Future Past. Everyone can relax. Gambit <laughs> has returned because there is nothing. Just it's the perfect sleazy Gambit. Just like everybody loves Gambit. <laughs> it it's Gambit as like basically ninety sitcom character. Like yes. You know. <laughs> yes um yeah no that's a good that that is one that's definitely always stuck with me but you know i was i was looking through just trivia about the cartoon uh for reasons that will be disclosed later and uh i got reminded of there's the scene in night of the sentinels in the very first episode where the sentinel tells cyclops to surrender and cyclops says of course and then and then he blasts him and goes not What a fucking timestamp! So nice. That is not to mention entirely out of character with the rest of Cyclops on that show. Yeah, he gets to have like one joke per season, and he used it up in the pilot. <laughs> like, like if if it, you know when X Men ninety seven comes out, and in the first episode, uh, you know Cyclops says like "Oh behave" or "Yeah, baby," you know he starts pulling <laughs> all some powers. <laughs> Please do oh, that. Please. <laughs> oh, oh, animated Scott. You're my favorite X-Man, but you are such a stiff. You are such a stiff. Stand down, Wolverine. I go where I want to go. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> but at least he doesn't pass out every episode. Oh, poor G. Oh, she didn't pass out that much. No, I don't know if you saw, but I had a, a little like... Twitter moment the other day because I you know there's some very passionate fans online and really (laughs) you think and for the X-Men community in particular uh, a lot of strong emotions and Mm -hmm. one of the things I've found normally my, my, my thing is like you know just let the books speak for themselves Twitter only has to matter as much as you you let it matter but Mm -hmm. I every time I post something about X-Men 92 I get these kind of like preemptively stressed out comments thinking that Jean is going to be quote useless in the book or Mm. like oh she's just gonna faint all the time blah 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 and it's like you know what has happened to you that like you see that Jean is going to be in something and you're already mad that you're imagining she's not going to be very good in it Um, but I tweeted something to the effect of like you know I promise Jean Grey is no chump and it, it ignited like the whole whole cycle of fandom opinions of like oh he's on our side like oh what does this mean for this other character oh i screw these other creators i was like okay i'm taking this down this has been a miserable 30 minutes just by the book when it comes out (laughs) (laughs) i've made a huge mistake i've made a huge mistake (laughs) oh man um so was this how much of a like a research thing was this for you? Were you watch rewatching old episodes? Were you like speed reading through like you know Hawks Box and Ten of Swords again just to get yourself reacquainted? You know, it's always a tough balancing act when you're working on um, 
a license of like trying to maintain your own voice with refreshing yourself with the established voices, especially mm-hmm. something like this. I mean, you know, this is not a uh, Steve Fox uniqueness showcase. This is a tribute for, for mm-hmm. two eras of the X-Men. Um, so I found myself going back through episodes really just for fun. I mean, I, I kind of watch this show at regular intervals anyway, especially since it's been on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were a handful of episodes that I needed to, to look at to see how they handled some character dynamics. Uh, and I did read Hawks Pox again as a, a good little refresher just because it had been a while. But I keep up to date on all the X-Men books as a fan anyway. And a couple of years ago, I started a complete chronological reread of the X-Men, um, reading every single issue published since Giant Size. Okay. And I happen to be in 1993 right now. So I was already kind of like my nightly before bedtime reading was uh, Executioner song and <laughs> stuff like that. So I, I was really in the perfect sweet spot when when this opportunity came up. That's nice. Yeah. That 93 is is when I started. So I got in just like a month or two before Fatal Attraction started. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The um, X-Men story where the other Psylocke shows up at the end. That was my <laughs> first issue. And I was like, who is what this? A- She's not on the cartoon. Now there's two of them. <laughs> what a disorienting storyline to go into. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And li- listen. What was your entryway to the X Men? Revanche. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jim Shooter was right saga? about one thing. <laughs> Every comic is someone's first. <laughs> I, I jumped in in the middle chapter of the Muir Island saga with Colossus and Stevie Hunter and Xavier on the cover. It was. It looked cool, and I was like, <laughs> I, I, and I had seen Pride of the X Men, or, or was it? Or Spider Man is an amazing friends where Colossus was at least there, so I had some <laughs> grounding in who that was. But wait, that guy doesn't walk. Why is he walking? <laughs> I don't remember that green haired woman being so tall and buff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, although I will say, I guess the issue that probably sold me on the X books because I, I was then getting like I got a few of them was uh X Factor 68, and it probably mm. it explains my Cyclops love because that's despite not getting a lot of what was going on, it was just really cool. And this guy with the laser eyes had this real <laughs> great moment there. It's like, okay, I get this. I like that guy. You know what made me love X-Men? The comic where Cyclops abandoned his son a second time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and people wonder why I'm not a father. <laughs> hey, listen, it had great Will Spertasio art. <laughs> It's funny that you got in with like I guess I guess it was on Candy Two Seventy Nine because that's right when yep. Claremont punched out. <laughs> yep. You know, the, uh, the, things were a little loosey goosey in that era. <laughs> just, yeah. just a tad. <laughs> a lot yeah, of words the, said, a lot of hurt feelings, <laughs> a lot of Fabian really, Cieza doing his best. <laughs> I mean, honestly, he kills it. Like it's it's so funny to read these with a modern eye because I think like on one hand we mythologize this era, and on the other hand. We, we assume that it's going to be this certain over-the-top thing. But, like, I honestly, I think Fabian laid a lot of the groundwork for how a lot of modern comics are written. He kind of yeah. pioneered this certain amount of quips per <laughs> action scene and all the rest uh, and transitioned from, like, the Claremont era to the modern stuff. Um, but it's fun to see with modern eyes and contemporary viewpoints on things also pretty much every artist from that era is still working today and, and doing fantastic work it's, it's a kind of a shock to go back and realize that like 
in eight, you know, 87 through 93, a lot of these guys are still churning out monthly books. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So a uh, friend of the show, uh, our friend Adam Reck asks, uh, how much are you adhering to Fox Saturday morning circa 1992 standards and practices in terms of depictions <laughs> of violence? You know, that actually has come up a couple of times, uh, particularly in our uh, X of Swords issue of like how far we were going to go. True. I'd say we probably got away with a little more than Fox was going to show at the time, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it is something I kept in mind with violence and language. I know the previous series did some kind of like meta jokes about censorship, mm-hmm. which I didn't bring that back for this because I wanted to like keep people in the moment of the book. Um, but there is a panel, Salvage drew two versions where one was a little too gory for daytime TV. So we switched mm-hmm. it around to the, the more obscured kid-friendly version. <laughs> But, you know, this show was also like probably one of the first times I saw people talking about death in fiction as a kid. Like they waste no time in being like, oh, yeah, people die. Well, they don't. Then they come back and they're evil. But <laughs> as far as you know, for a couple of <laughs> seasons, people die. <laughs> Morph, Morph died and Beast got acquainted with the carceral state. Absolutely. <laughs> and that radicalized me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so here's here's something funny I found out today. So uh, you mentioned Asimov Fangirl before. Uh, she showed me some dialogue from the Latin dub or the, uh, excuse me, the Spanish language dub of uh, X-Men. So in the original, when uh, Gene or whoever says Morph, he's gone, the, the dub just says Morph is dead. And then, uh, you know, where we were used to, uh, what, uh, I guess there's an exchange here that says, what is that? A robot, I believe. Sounds like Beast. Then the dub says, what is that? A damn robot. <laughs> so apparently uh yeah the uh uh on espanol version uh goes there a little bit more (laughs) well if we get a translation i'll see if they can up the content level make this a pg-13 book there we go trust me tito and sap um (laughs) (laughs) uh in terms of in in terms of rules is kind of what we're talking about here you know what were you going off of in terms of character use so and, you know, this has been made public before, so it's no grand secret. This is technically a self-contained continuity. You know, we're not a tie-in with the cartoon. We're heavily influenced by the cartoon. But due to, you know, the complex nature of, of rights, even within a, a single entity, you know, X-Men 92 is its own thing. And X-Men the Animated Series is its own thing. We are heavily indebted to that. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the rules, though, were really kind of self-imposed guidelines. Because, you know, the previous 92 series, they used some ecstatics characters, they used Gen X characters. But the thing about the current situation on Krakoa is that any mutant can show up in any costume they've ever worn. So if this was going to feel distinct beyond just the way I wrote the characters, I wanted to make sure it had its own visual identity. So you're not going to see anyone show up who didn't either appear on the show or who had existed by 1992. So you're not going to see any Gen X kids. You're not going to see Marrow and Maggot and, you know, characters I love. Um, You're not going to see most of the members of the five that exist Mm -hmm. on Krakoa or or X-Factor that exist on Krakoa, but that doesn't mean you won't see other mutants filling those roles uh, pulled from the large number of genetically blessed characters from the the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, one thing that the book replicates in its own inimitable style is, is the data pages. Uh, 
Now, I'm not going, you know, we're not here to talk about the content of the data pages, but I, I did want to give Jay Bowen some credit here and talk about the look of the pages. Uh, if I were to describe it, uh, if do you remember the opening credits of Saved by the Bell? That That's what we're talking about here, uh, you know. And that's uh, literally I, what I wrote and screenshotted in the script. Was, <laughs> I, I would love for this to look like the opening credits of Saved by the Bell, if we can. <laughs> and they, yeah, they delivered. I was... So, cause you know, I submitted that request thinking like, you know, everyone on the production side is always busy. It, it, this is a big ask for, you know, this mini series. I'll be happy if I get, you know, black text on a white page, like we'll make it work. Mm -hmm. But when they turn that back around, I, I just like my jaw dropped. Like that was such a fun <laughs> moment to see them run with it and have fun with it. And we're, aiming to do fun things for each of the data pages going forward. It's not just going to be spreads like that. You might see some other kind of nineties feeling vibes ahead. Ooh. Okay. All right. That's, that, that's a good tease. Uh, we're, we're, but uh, yeah, no, we're, we're starting out strong with these uh, Lisa Frank folders looking. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's, Obviously, there's so many questions I want to ask about a book that is not out yet until the day after this episode <laughs> releases. And I'm, I'm, we're doing our best to kind of stuff that stuff deep down inside. <laughs> how are, how are you kind of feeling at this point? You know, is there a part of you that's dying to talk about some of the things that happened in this book on Maine, and then like on 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 Wednesday, uh, April sixth, when it comes out, you're just gonna like burst all over social media. <laughs> I oh, I'm very excited for a particular reveal at the end of the issue. Um, mm. I think that yeah, hopefully, knock on wood, people will be surprised and, and excited to see what that means because you know one of the things Jordan and I talked about when we were developing the book is that the animated series adapted so many classic storylines but one of the fun things they did was retrofit those storylines to include characters like Gambit and Jubilee who didn't exist <laughs> when Days of Future Past was told or when um, the Dark Phoenix saga happened so I knew I wanted to make a couple little changes like that to really foreground the cast we think about when we think about X-Men, the animated series. Because mm -hmm. um, that's part of the appeal too, right? Like all these characters have stayed prominent, but it's been years since you've really seen like Rogue and Gambit and Beast interacting or like, you know, Gene and Cyclops. Well, now we see Gene and Cyclops leading the X-Men, but that was for a long time. That wasn't the case. You know, we mm -hmm. went through a period where you kind of had one or the other at a time. So putting that cast together, really keeping them the focus of this on this version of Krakoa and finding little ways to change the narrative, because if it's a direct cover song, it's like, you know, why are you buying this? Like right. if it's just a five issue version of stories that already exist and that people really like, that's kind of not enough. So this is both a tribute and a little bit of a what if, um, and I'm really just excited for people to read each subsequent issue because the changes you see in issue one just kind of snowball in two and three and four and five. And, you know, we're, we're sticking to this being a love letter of 1992 and the Krakoa era, mm -hmm. but it's going to go places you don't expect. And you're going to see characters who might not play a big role in the 616 version being very important to what's going on in the 92 version. <laughs> that is uh that is fantastic you know one thing i was thinking of when we're talking about you know centering the the sort of core cast of the animated series is beast so you know <laughs> yeah. same 
we're looking yeah we're looking at a very different hank mccoy these days (laughs) and i you know it's funny there there is there is an issue of x-force where where hank sort of comments on that where you know it's 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 like people always ask you know tell me they miss the old uh me and you know clearly that 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 train sailed a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it really you know it, so i say this with like complete respect and admiration for everyone who's worked on beast for the past two decades mm-hmm. you know he's had a long moral arc since he was a cat <laughs> to now mm-hmm. um but it, it was almost a little heartbreaking to write him in this because <laughs> I did grow up with, you know, the, the big furry, intelligent, you know, quick witted beast. And uh, he's certainly a different man today <laughs> than he was 30 years ago. But that's also, you know, that's the fun of having multiple continuities and, and multiple timelines and the you know, throwback projects that we're getting to see more of now. So mm. Uh, but I will say I, I might have shed like a little tear with a smile as I was writing Hank. <laughs> Just like, oh, how how much you've changed. <laughs> Without too much of a spoiler on this one, will there be any data page or general hints involving adjoining bedrooms? Or is that completely <laughs> like I'm not going to even try to go there in an X-Men 92 riff? I don't think Fox would have allowed that. <laughs> Fox kids might have had a thing thing or two to say about that. I will say there is a page um, in issue two in, involving one of those characters that uh, I was surprised with the, the visual symbolism um, and the uh, flowering of it all. <laughs> I was like, okay, Salva, good job. Go for it. Like <laughs> this, uh, would it make it past censors? I don't know, but they made it in the book. <laughs> I, I'm kind of picturing. So 1992, obviously we're going by Saturday morning, uh, you know, BS and P standards here, but you know, Fox 1992 at like 9 PM, sort of like married <laughs> with children rerun. So you just show the data page with the adjoining bedrooms that the audit, the uh, canned audience goes. <laughs> I would listen if I got a chance to write the married with children version of these characters <laughs> I would have a great time with like Jean with the the full bouffant hairdo and the, mm-hmm. the spandex and leopard print yeah cut this so I can pitch it <laughs> okay Ted McGinley for Gambit moving on um <laughs> <laughs> So the the one thing that I, I I will bring up in text, and this was in the preview preview pages that have been circulating online. I think they came in uh, were on Sci-Fi first, but the visual of the Orcus Forge with the giant cartoon master mold in the center. So it's still this gray circle, metallic circle floating in space. But in the middle, you've got the classic red, purple, and gold robot that poops out smaller <laughs> robots uh, sitting in his chair. That is that is the perfect encapsulation of the energy this book is bringing, and it. There's no question there. I'm here for it. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And that really does kind of like distill what we're doing into one image, which I I mean, I am a huge, like, even if I was not getting Marvel checks right now, I would say I am a huge fan of Jonathan Hickman. I'm a huge fan of everyone who's worked on this line. And I'm a huge sucker for like this version of futurism and, and the, the heady sci-fi stuff, but also, you know, 
that was not what we were doing in 1992. <laughs> it's certainly not what they were doing on the animated series. So finding ways to bring the, the Hickmanisms to the 1992-isms and marry them in kind of colorful, ridiculous, but not outright mocking ways uh, has mm-hmm. kind of been a big part of the fun of the book. Because, you know, there's humor throughout, there's winks and nods, but it's not a joke book. It's not like a straight up parody or a laughing stock. We're, we're treating it about as seriously as the 92 cartoon did, which is like, I'm sure they knew they were having these characters say some pretty heightened things, but we still gave you the, the pathos and the drama. But yes, Storm also yelled about a monorail once, so. Yes. <laughs> so uh yeah since we 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 definitely want to avoid spoilers i thought we'd do a fun little diversion instead so steve we're gonna play a little 92 trivia with you are you are you are you game you up for it i am ready to potentially bomb and and embarrass myself but hopefully i will i will uh hold myself up with with dignity i it's 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 all in fun so (laughs) no worries there but uh okay so 10 questions and a bonus. Let's get started. Um, I'll add the dramatic music in later. My first test since high school. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What holiday did the first episode of X-Men, the animated series debut on? Getting off to a real strong start here with a, a long exhale. Uh, President's Day? Ooh, ooh. October 31st. It was Halloween. They on Halloween? Yes, prime time. Oh gosh. Kids all come back from trick-or-treating. They're hopped up on sugar and 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 ready to see the claw man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I must have been in a sugar coma. <laughs> all right. Question two. In the cartoon, which of the series' main characters switched voice actors for three episodes in later seasons? And it sounded real weird. Oh, I should absolutely know this. Mm. Was it Rogue? No, it was Gambit. Gambit. Friendly yeah. voice Gambit at the end. <laughs> He's been smoking three packs a day. Old <laughs> finally, finally caught up with him. <laughs> It was very much a, a jubilee. Are, are are you safe right now? Do you need to? Do you need a different adult <laughs> type situation. Uh, all right. The uh, question three: The cartoon originally was supposed to end with the four-part storyline Beyond Good and Evil, a time travel story guest starring Apocalypse, Cable, Bishop, Shard, and this <laughs> random ass Avengers villain. I'm rubbing my temples to process the thought. I have no idea. And I also had no idea for like years. It was a mortis. You know, a like mortis super showed up there? King. <laughs> I was yes. gonna say King, but he's not that random. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it he shows up. He's the uh 
the janitor of time. And at the very end, he does this swirly thing and he's immortus and then disappears. And, then, and, and there's no, no one comments on it. He doesn't even say, oh, it was I, immortus this whole time. You know, there's no context. It's weird. But anyway. well, it's also where they have the, like, the psychics in the test tubes, right? Yes. Including yeah. Strife, who like yes. no one, Cable does not recognize or remark upon or anything. It's just like, let's just throw the assorted psychics in the background here. I, that was that that was what the cartoon was very good at doing. <laughs> uh, man. Okay. 1992 also saw the launch of Batman, the animated series. Mark Hamill is, of course, known for his iconic performance as the Joker on that show. But what Spider-Man villain did Hamill also portray on Saturday mornings? I had no idea he voiced a Spider-Man villain. Mm-hmm. He couldn't have been the Green Goblin. That's too close. It is close, yes. The Hobgoblin? Yes! Whoa! That's awesome. There's no difference. There's no difference in the voice. It's a guy who talks like this. That was a bad impression. (laughs) And and his Jason McIndale voice is the voice he used for Heart of Ice when he was the uh, Ferris Boyle, the crooked businessman who was responsible for (laughs) Mr. Freeze's origin, which was Hamill's first Batman the Animated Series cameo, and now I will stop talking about Batman the Animated Series because I can go all night. <laughs> Although, I mean, that like single-handedly makes me like Hobgoblin more. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. What 1992 movie directed by Francis Ford Coppola and featuring Keanu Reeves stars a classic X-Men villain? Stars a class. Oh, Dracula. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, was, I was way overthinking it because I was like, okay, well, there's only one Coppola movie with Keanu Reeves, but I was like, which act did Gary Oldman ever voice an X Men villain? Like, <laughs> technically, <Ooh>. yes. <laughs> All right. Question six Wizard Magazine once fan cast supermodel Iman as Storm. That never happened. But Iman is famous for playing a Pharaohess in this 1992 Michael Jackson video opposite Eddie Murphy. Wait, she played a what? Uh, Pharaohess queen. Oh, I was like, is that the gender? I think version I made that word pharaoh? up. <laughs> I, I made that word up. I'm I think sorry. They're just called pharaohs. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, I have no idea. But I don't even feel bad because this is like eight steps removed from X Men at this point. <laughs> yeah, fair. That's why I called it '92 trivia. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So this was for the song "Remember the Time" off of the Dangerous album. Oh, who could ever forget "Remember the Time," the famous <laughs> top ten Michael Jackson hit. Actually, that that it was like top. It was like thirteen on Billboard. I had, I, had to, I had to look it up. It was after Black or White. <laughs> but okay. Question seven: X Men comics proved Alaska can be a terrifying place, full of marauders, <laughs> master molds, and Madeline Pryors. This CBS comedy drama, which ran from nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety five, proved that in fact Alaska is hilarious and full of heart. Wings wasn't Alaska, was it? No, it was not. No. Uh, was it a Bob Newhart show? Was that a double? It was not double? a Bob Newhart okay. show. I didn't know if you were misleading me with full of heart. Uh, I don't know. I, I give up. I give up. All right. That was Northern Exposure. Northern Exposure. I thought that was Canadian. That's Alaska? No, I actually, yeah. I, I looked it up. It is Alaska. Oh, it, it, it is. My my. Cousin-in-law lives not far from the town where they that Northern Exposure is set. Where the moose walk through? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a fictionalized version of that town, but it sure. is absolutely yeah. that town. 
It is so funny not to to pause the trivia, no, but it is it, so please. funny to think that Scott's heritage is split between Alaska and is it Kansas or Nebraska where the orphanage was? The orphanage was Nebraska. Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. I, it just says so much about him. <laughs> like, <laughs> the two influences on his upbringing being Alaska and Nebraska. It's just really puts Scotty into perspective. It does. <laughs> All right, question eight. The 1992 crossover event Executioner's Song begins with an assassination attempt on Charles Xavier by Strife posing as Cable. This popular video game, which debuted in arcades in fall 1992, let you brutally assassinate your opponent with blood and everything. Mortal Kombat? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Question nine. Krakoa is known for producing flowers that heal illness or create teleportation gates. In 1992, Jennifer Flowers admitted to having an affair with this presidential candidate. Oh my God. (laughs) That's an all-time great transition. (laughs) How about you? 92, so that's Bill, but he didn't have... It's not Bill, right? Is it Bill Clinton? It's Bill Clinton. Damn, he got around. Yes, he did. (laughs) (laughs) As we found out increasingly through the decade. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, this one does not have a clever transition for some, re- but here it is anyway. Uh, question 10. Whom did Amy Fisher, dubbed the Long Island Lolita by the media, shoot in the face on May 19th, 1992? Well, it was the guy's wife, but I don't know her name. <laughs> Close well, enough. Was... Mary Joe Buttafuoco. There we go. Okay, I knew his, I knew is the wife, and she survives. Mm-hmm. Buttafuoco. Uh, uh, yeah, last name played for laughs on uh, late night TV. While <laughs> <laughs> Jay and Dave fought it out for the Tonight Show. Uh, <laughs> okay, so that was now bonus question, final question. Name all six of the original Dark Riders. Okay, there's hard drive. Yep, that's one. Synapse. Two. Gauntlet. Yep. Tusk. Yep. Foxbat. Yes. And the one I always confuse with Gauntlet. Because his action figure that was never released was named Gauntlet, despite it not being Gauntlet. No shit. I, I can picture him, and his name is similar you know, I feel great about five out of six. So yeah, no, that was pretty damn good. And you started with the two most obscure ones. I, I thought you were going <laughs> to stall on synapse and hard drive. No, it was barrage. Barrage. The guy with guns for hands. With guns for hands. But Gauntlet uses guns. So it's yes. like yes. very similar crossover there. I friggin' love the Dark Rider. So <laughs> me too. Absolutely. <laughs> and considering Matt started with X Factor 68. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The I, is, well, they're not even mutants they're inhumans they don't even go to the school all those guys are inhumans yeah all the mutant ones they added later and it it cracks me up I, i've said it elsewhere too like as a kid i was like oh i have a tusk action figure tusk must be important <laughs> like no <laughs> tusk has like two lines <laughs> in his entire publishing history i mean they were important in that they were rad as hell and then you know considering that era was the era of sort of like the team full of goons whose names you couldn't tell apart. Oh yeah. Looking at you acolytes, uh, <laughs> like the dark riders were at least distinct. I, I, 
both respect and hate but for the acolytes they're like no 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 we're just going to use their last names we're not even gonna we cannot come up with 20 new code names this one's just bob <laughs> like we're gonna move <laughs> forward from here they had a lizard monster named seamus Mellencamp. <laughs> yes Mellencamp. <laughs> so funny they like yeet him out the window into a mountain the, the best was um how was it phoenix resurrection the rosenberg story from like early 20, when they bring gene back and they pick the church from x uncanny 300 and like the seamus mellencamp fight as like a pivotal <laughs> moment I'm like, what are you what are you doing she really showed off her power she did she did <laughs> so i'm saying gene's no gene's no chump we know this gene's no chump that's what right. i'm saying <laughs> So uh, when when X Men ninety seven debuts on Disney Plus next year, what horrible timestamps from similar to Cyclops not a joke uh, are are you hoping show up either you know in I guess in comic or is like things that were happening in the comic in ninety seven or or in real life? Okay, so first off, I desperately want to see Maggot, Cecilia, and Marrow. The Trinity. I love, mm-hmm. I love those characters, and they've never gotten their due. And it would just kick all, you know, all types of ass to see animated versions of them, uh, especially Marrow. Like she would be such a cool in- introduction to that cast. Uh, I want to see some new metal. I want to mm. hear like some Static X style riffs. I want to like, I want to see baggier jeans on these characters. I want to see some frosted tips. Uh, I want to see bad tribal tattoos on mm-hmm. some of the new supporting characters. Uh, yeah, I, I want to f- see that fully embraced. Uh, someone should show up in an all jean tuxedo like uh, Brittany and Justin you know that was probably a few years after that but uh, we're not going to get away with that Rose McGowan assless dress so Uh that's the other uh, fashion memory from the era that stands out to me Uh, yeah I want to see like some full turn of the century matrix wannabe nerd shit yes and then absolutely Mero. and Mero. <laughs> like, yeah make Miro really like Limp Biscuit or something like let's <laughs> let's go there and this is uh, why I'm not getting to write on X-Men 97 <laughs> <laughs> no no that, no that that that's good yeah exactly you know I was thinking you make Jubilee sort of the um because she was the POV character of the show, you have her sort of adapting the fashion trends of the era. So the Janko jeans, the metal bead <laughs> necklaces, you know, Sony Discman on her hip, cranking like 311 or something. It would be but, totally, it, it would fit perfectly, especially if they bring in like some Gen X kids and you have like surly teenagers. Like I, I'm ready to see a Jubilee as a surly teenager hanging out with chamber and skin and the rest of them we need chamber just so we can get the x-men 92 verse version of that accent whatever they, <laughs> you know, an x-men 92 british accent up there impenetrable with british yeah yep <laughs> Ch- yeah chamber heavily invested in like the brit pop feud between oasis and blur yes <laughs> picking sides between gallagher brothers <laughs> And I've also, I'm, I'm starting to concoct this. If you bring in the Generation X kids, there's got to be an episode that's basically Spice World, but with like <laughs> Jubilee, M, Husk, Marrow, and uh, as Penance. <laughs> yeah, I hope they do like a six, six episode arc figuring out Penance. Like <laughs> just dive into the entire thing. Why not? 
but see in true 92 fashion though you cram that you cram that all into one episode <laughs> the way they crammed those two twins into that penance uh skit that's true that's true they you found can... a way to do the maximoffs in one episode i mean it's <laughs> uh, in peace the maximoffs being mutants <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm not. I'm not going down the Wanda yeah. rabbit hole right now. I <laughs> don't <laughs> oh, know. Keep an eye out in '92 because they sure counted as mutants back then. That's true. That is true. But uh, yeah, let's let's let, let's move on to the other uh, book that we talked about early in the uh, the intro that you got coming out, Matt. Because uh, you're also writing uh, a series that's set to launch uh, soonish after this episode will drop. That also has its roots in the '90s. Archer and Armstrong Forever from Valiant. Yeah. Here's- uh, sorry, can I tell you? I figured out on another podcast that it's also the 30th anniversary of Archer and Armstrong. Ah, didn't, okay. didn't realize that. <laughs> Might be time to slap it on some covers. <laughs> uh, here's the solicit text on this one for those who aren't familiar. Uh, the triumphant return of Valiant's best besties. When Armstrong seemingly loses his immortality, Archer refuses to let his best buddy go gentle into that good night. But when you live for millennia, you rack up plenty of enemies who will be thrilled to find out you're no longer indestructible. Archer and Armstrong's globetrotting quest for more immortality begins here. Uh, so were you a Valiant fan at all back in the, the, the day? So back in the day, full disclosure, I was not. I missed a lot of like the 90s boat. However, I was very into the relaunch in the early 2010s. Uh, and I stayed up with that line pretty much nonstop ever since. Uh, it's, it's nice to have like, I always considered it the kind of Morris science fiction action adventure alternative to superheroes. Like it's a little less mired in the Cape stuff. Um, so yeah, I've loved the line since then, but the 90s stuff was more of a, a recent enjoyment uh, now that I've been diving into Valiant more. Uh, so how did this come about? I mean, if you were a fan of the relaunch, did you pitch Valiant because you're a big fan of Valiant or Archer Armstrong, or did they come to you? Well, you know, a couple of times over the years, I've hit up other editors who are no longer there. And mm-hmm. then um, Rob Levin and I just kind of distantly knew of each other online. And he reached out to me out of the blue about an opportunity to pitch. Um, he had some openings in the lion coming up and he knew of my work and he, you know, knew of my reputation from other folks. And he asked me what I might be interested in putting together. And after our first conversation, we realized that he was a big fan of Archer and Armstrong. I was a big fan of Archer and Armstrong. And we both felt like it had been a little too long since the boys had a book on shelves. Um, So we put our heads together and and came up with Forever, which you can now read in early May, kicking off with a free comic book day, actually. Oh, right on. Nice. Yeah. So... When it comes to the creative team, I mean, this is a a great team. I mean, Dan and I have read a a black and white and uncolored advanced copy, and Mario Fioroito? Marcio, yeah. Marcio. Marcio. Oh, yeah, that was an autocorrect down there. (laughs) (laughs) Marcio Fioroito's, the pencils are gorgeous. Uh, I mean, Haas is, you know, when it comes to lettering, one of the greats. Um, Did you come in with any of these creators or was that you know rob coming to you and being like hey you know we were thinking about these people to work on the book well yeah so haas i i i 
pitch a fit until he letters almost everything I do. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's one of my very good friends in this industry. I think he's an absolute genius. I, I feel very lucky to get to work with him uh, on a number of different projects, including a creator-owned thing that's that won't be announced for a little while. Um, but Marcio, uh, I was not familiar with his work. Rob sent me a number of portfolios and Marcio's really stood out to both of us. Um, one of the great things about my experience with Valiant is that <clears throat> they really involve all of us every step of the way. Um, so, you know, we're all getting a chance to review things and have input on things and know kind of the logic going on to the decisions behind the scenes. And yeah, so he brought me Marcio's work and then together we found Alex. Uh, I unfortunately cannot pronounce his last name off the top of my head, but um, he is fantastic once you get a chance to see the colors. Um, he's doing a lot of work across publishers right now. I think he's really kind of set to blow up. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, Marcio, he just has this really nice clean line style. It, it's a great balance between the action adventure of the book and the humor. Uh, some of his reaction shots just really get me. Um, and he's been such a pleasure to work with. And it's also kind of nice because, you know, neither one of us have like the largest profile in comics just yet. Um, so it, it kind of feels like we're both trying to leave our mark on this book and, you know, really show what we can do and, and push each other to do just that much more. So you just mentioned this, so it's actually segued nicely. Um, how did you go into this book approaching that balance between comedy and drama? Uh, Arthur Armstrong's stories are usually on the lighter side of things. It's uh, Gillard, Aram's brother, who usually, you know, is the drama <laughs> queen of that family. Um, but and while there's comedy here, you're also dealing with something a little heavier, really mortality and how people react to it. Yeah, I mean, partially, I think I have a darker sense of humor. Um, and I, I do find a lot of levity in, in darker subjects. <clears throat> That's just kind of like my approach to coping with things. And I think someone who's lived for millennia like Armstrong has, you have to have that same sort of attitude or else you would just go completely unhinged seeing everyone you know and love, you know, die in what is essentially the blink of an eye for you. Uh, and to know that his immortality is based on a, a massive loss of life is something he has to, to live with every day. Um, but the less serious side of that answer is also that as much as I love comedy, I think comedy is very hard. And I think that it's traditionally been a hard sell in monthly comics as well. Um, part of it's down to when you're writing a comic, you cede a certain amount of control over pacing and reception to the reader. You know, in a movie, you can construct the, you know, every bit of the audio and the timing to make a joke land with the highest success rate possible. I can't control how fast a reader turns a, a comic page or goes down a comic page. Um, you're also, even in the gap between when you write something and when it comes out, more topical humor ends up feeling dated. There's just a lot of things out of your control. And for whatever reason, American readers don't love comedy forward books. Like, American readers love superhero books with quips in them and like jokes and gags. But when it comes to like a full-blown comedy book, those have traditionally struggled. Um, but all of that is like a very obtuse way to talk about it. it. It just boils down to what I liked best about Archer and Armstrong was that balancing act. Um, and I think especially the Fred Van Linty run, which was mostly uh, Clayton Henry and, and um, oh, 
Perez, Pepe Perez, um, <laughs> that always had real stakes and, you know, real conflict and real consequences in between the humor. It kind of never lost sight of telling this globe-trotting action-adventure story while giving us jokes and laughs along the way. So this is kind of the similar balance I was trying to strike. And I've said it elsewhere too, but uh, early in quarantine, I, I really binged like classic action movies like Die Hard and Police Story and stuff like that. And so I think that was in my mind as something I wanted to pay a little bit of tribute to. Um, I'm a huge cynic slash asshole when it comes to modern movies like I just my letterbox is just a trail of carnage uh, I, I like almost like my boyfriend just says I don't like anything and it's a little bit true but I'm like especially sick of the modern method of blockbusters that it's just completely weightless and all the humors the like oh can you believe that just happened like it's just not not particularly funny or clever to me so I was trying to tap into a little bit more of that um classic balance for Archer and Armstrong forever. Again, along those lines, and I'm doing my best to avoid spoilers since we are still a month <laughs> out. Uh, how hard are you going to be pushing Archer? I mean, Obi has always had this little bit of an edge being, you know, raised by a cult and trained as an assassin. <laughs> uh, but he's generally good natured and that keeps that darkness in check. But now it's seems like he's kind of being right on the edge yeah i think you see right in the first issue that if you put obi under enough pressure he does come up against the boundaries of what he's willing to do or not do i think there's a lot of material to be mined from kind of pushing a character to his or her limits um which is not to say that like this run is about torturing Archer and Armstrong it's not it's really kind of a, a tribute to what I consider one of the most nuanced friendships in comics and, and kind of one of the more complex relationships in comics um, but you know part of the fun is putting those characters in a pressure cooker and seeing how they react uh, and you'll see throughout the series you know Art he's not going to end up becoming like a dark avenger <laughs> you know <laughs> he doesn't put on a cape and a cowl in a couple issues but he only has a couple people in his life who have proven to be trustworthy reliable and as good to him as he is to other people you know that that's a very short list because like you said he was raised in a fundamentalist cult they misled him severely and even the closest relationship he got out of that mary maria you know, she's, uh, she's been willing to stab him in the back a couple times. So Archer, I think, can count his real friends on one hand. And if one of those real friends becomes threatened or endangered, uh, I think you're going to see Archer really kind of expand what he thinks he's capable of. Also, to be clear, Archer has, has never really hesitated to like kick ass <laughs> you know he, he's always been willing to break out that assassin training so oh, oh yeah yeah it, it's more the some of the other things that are hinted at in that first issue that were in yeah. my head when i asked that yeah i mean he has no problem <laughs> even before the the bad stuff happens he's he's out there kicking ass which yeah the, the boy can throw a punch <laughs> <laughs> and and also understand that you can't spoil you 
can't uh, shouldn't spoil even further down than we've read <laughs> any chance that we're gonna see some faith because she and archer are just so darn cute <laughs> well so here's what i'll say for the first arc my focus was really on showing new faces in the valiant universe like when you get a chance to do a book like this when you get a chance to do a run like this you want to add to the world you're playing in so in this first arc you're going to see more new faces than old but once that arc's done there are some really close supporting characters that i couldn't resist putting my stamp on so maybe you'll see faith maybe in issue six i don't know who knows <laughs> uh, but uh you know if, if there are some characters from their past that you would expect to see uh, interacting and, and reacting to new status quos there's a good chance you'll see them i, I do like that we're using that phrase first arc the, yeah well you know as a second <laughs> fingers crossed uh people respond to the book well but the nice thing about planning the way Valiant plans is there's kind of like a mobile off-ramp. So you're going to get a complete story no matter mm -hmm. what. Like we know how this run is eventually going to end, but hopefully we get to tell a lot of fun stories before that. So would you rather personally pal around with Archer or Armstrong? I don't think I could keep up with Armstrong at all. I, I mean, I, I don't drink or do anything like that. I get very tired starting at 10 p.m. Uh, like, <laughs> I don't think I could keep up with him. Uh, Archer and I actually have very similar energy around a lot of things. Like, I think we're both kind of like fussy and like things a certain way and are a little sheltered. Um, but I do think Armstrong could probably uh, teach me a thing or two about literature and the arts. People forget that aside from being a drunkard, he's actually really well read and uh, has met many of the important artists throughout history. So that would be a fun part of the conversation. I would just need it to be like over brunch or something. <laughs> Perfect. So, you know, Matt, in prepping for this episode, it occurred to me we now have had like the last three Archer and Armstrong writers on the show because we, you know, we're talking to Steve right now. We had Rafer Roberts on and we had Fred Van Lente on. So now we just have to figure out whom to bribe to get Jim Shooter on here who created the <laughs> characters and ask him about that time he had Spider-Man teach the Beyonder to poop. <laughs> <laughs> you also got to get um, James Asmus because he did the delinquents. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 He co-wrote that. There we go. Yeah, yeah, complete the uh, the quintfecta there. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and then we'd have to start because we would then have, geez, that's, we we've had a couple of the Quantum and Woody writers too. We, we're we're yeah, you just yeah. gotta catch them all. Also, <laughs> I will. So I mentioned that chronological X Men read earlier. The mm -hmm. only the only thing I skimmed over was Secret Wars two. <laughs> That was the only one where I was like, I, I physically can't do this entire thing. I am so sorry to everyone involved. I'm going to read these new mutant pages and go on with my life. And nothing of value was lost. <laughs> yeah. That shit went on way too long in too many books. Bless them all. Not everything ages perfectly. <laughs> yeah, no, that, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> You're, you're also still writing lots of kids books. Uh, I saw you have a Justice League Save Christmas with an advent calendar coming out in September. <laughs> uh, after writing so many of these seemingly simple books, is there a, any challenge left to them? 
Yeah, I mean, actually, those those can be really challenging because uh, you have so few words to use, and you also, ha- and depending on the age range, have a restricted vocabulary. Um, it's one thing when I'm writing Archer and Armstrong, I I can say whatever I want, save for you know super offensive stuff. But like, <laughs> if I'm writing a you know My Little Pony book or um, you know a Mario book or something, I I have to work within the language that's appropriate for second graders and. A lot of those even have rules about how many characters can be on a line of of uh, text. So, huh. I I do think that they've probably taught me something about sentence uh, utility and conciseness. Uh, and you know they're fun. It's fun to get to say like, yeah, I wrote Pokemon books. I wrote My Little Pony and Baby Shark and Legend of Zelda and all these things. It's it is zany to switch modes though. <laughs> like. I mean, last week I was going between a superhero thing I can't talk about yet, Mm -hmm. um, a creator owned that is like full blown dark horror, um, a one of my first second books that I'm writing, uh, which is for middle grade readers and a um, Smurfs I can read. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> like a Smurfs kids book. So it's like, I really have to kind of decompress between each of these projects <laughs> before I can get in the mode of, of one thing to the next. You know, you mentioned Mario in that, in that repertoire. Is there a, an accepted or, or canonical or contractually obligated spelling <laughs> for it's a me? Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm almost positive. It's I T apostrophe S hyphen a and then just me Me. yeah so it's it's a me comma mario yeah i'm pretty sure that's what we had to do (laughs) uh now you also have another uh spider ham uh ogn on the way right i do yeah shoddy and i did a sequel um spider-man and hollywood mayhem um that's coming out in august i believe um i know it got bumped a little bit just due to all the ongoing issues with production and printing and shipping yeah all the everything (laughs) yeah literally just everything you want to read this year expect to read it like two weeks later than you wanted to um but yes shadi and i did that last fall uh pretty much right on the heels of the first one uh it was so fun oh sorry were you gonna ask a question or should i just keep talking no no man keep going (laughs) yeah i was gonna say it was it was so fun to do um like sliding back into peter porker's voice and doing more with mary jane in this one she's along for the whole adventure um getting to show more of his villains and getting to introduce more animal versions of marvel characters Mm -hmm. um we debuted captain meowville in the first one and you're going to get to see uh, Mr. Negatiger and Monica Ramboa and a couple other really, really fun um, cameos here and there throughout the book. Those, those are so fun to write. I, I hope it does well and we can just keep making Spider-Ham stories. <laughs> <laughs> Got to complete the trilogy. I never would have expected, I, like I used to say, as much as I want to write for Marvel, the one character I just don't think I could do is Spider-Man because I don't think I'm that funny. And then of course, the first thing that got offered to me was the comedy version of (laughs) Spider-Man, like the version that's just funny. (laughs) But, you know, hopefully I rose to the occasion. It it certainly feels fun. Now, when you're writing him, do you hear that like John Mulaney and Spider-Verse voice in your head or do you have your own sort of voice for 
for Spider-Ham. Oh, I have my own. Yeah. One of the first things they said was that this is not explicitly the John Mulaney version. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think John Mulaney is very funny, but it's such a different take on Spider-Ham than the one in the most of the comics. Mm-hmm. So I do have kind of a goofier, more lighthearted voice for, for Peter in my head. The John Mulaney version is like, he's quick. Like he, he is quicker than you. <laughs> <laughs> and the the comic version the 616 or you know whatever um designation larval earth has that version's a little more of like a trying his best and often making it worse <laughs> than john mulaney's version nice uh so uh what are you reading right now so i'm <laughs> mostly reading old x-men comics okay <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I wish I had a super intellectual answer to that, but uh, I, I, the last thing I read this morning was like Uncanny 303 or 304, Ileana's death issue. I was going to say, those are two very different comics. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's uh, Ileana kicks the bucket in an issue that is mostly about Jubilee's feelings, which I did not realize before I read it. Um, so I, I read a lot of old X-Men comics. Uh, I'm reading all the current X-Men comics. And uh, once in a while, I try to read anything else, but it's really, I, I, it's mostly X-Men comics. I'm at a point in my life where I, um, I mostly want to read things when they're done, which mm-hmm. is tough. You know, you want to support comics on a monthly basis. So it's usually a matter of like buying the single issues, but then actually reading them once it's all finished. Uh, and also I get the opportunity to read stuff in advance. So I don't always know like what's out. Like one of the, I read the first issue of James Tynan's uh, Sandman book, Nightmare mm-hmm. Co- Country uh, with Lysandra Estrin. And I don't think that's going to be out for a little bit, but fantastic read. <laughs> Folks should check it out when it is out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, otherwise I have been reading a lot of George Saunders, um, which is prose, not comics, but um, I am a strong believer in, you can't put good work out without like putting good work in the tank. Sure. So yeah. if, I, if I go too long without consuming anything of like high value, I have to go to my bookshelf and, and pick something good off of it. Um, so I've been going through his earlier short story collections and also um, an essay collection from around the turn of the 20th century, which is a weird read just because like how mired it is in like Iraq war stuff and everything, mm. but kind of a, interesting sense of perspective to have in 2022 compared uh cultural reactions to these things in the the pre-twitter era to now yeah so yeah. x-men and george saunders there we go you're getting those vegetables in and, and that's and that's what matters uh but uh you know Thinking about 303, though, I mean, you're absolutely right in that it centers Jubilee's feelings on Eliana's death because it is that weird period where the 90s are just starting to feel like they can talk about the 80s again. And it's not weird. Like, and, and that's why, like, we talked about Fabian earlier, but like Assault on Grey Malkin is, is probably his best X Force arc from that run because it's starting to be like, okay, Rob is gone. We're not doing an event. You know, we can finally establish what these characters like emotional stakes are moving forward right around 93 all the books kind of like figure out that they have more room to stop and breathe i think and like dive back into interpersonal relationships because like just before the 
Ilyana death issue, you have like Forge and Mystique getting attacked by Trevor mm-hmm. Fitzroy, and you kind of start to see that um, relationship get more complex before they go off into X Factor. Um, <clears throat> so it's a fun era. And you're right, it is right around the time where they realize they have a lot more characters on the board because right before that, they kill Sharon Friedlander <laughs> or put her in a coma or whatever. I think they kill her. Yeah. And, um, the the guy what's the guy's name tom court is it tom corsi yeah yeah tom corsi he's there he survives you know moira plays a big part in this this era with the legacy virus research so it was kind of like a moment of them thinking okay you know what we do have all these characters we can use and it's really it's impressive to see how many they juggle because i'll tell you from experience writing a team book is hard because (laughs) you only have so many pages to go around to give this cast of you know a large number of mutants enough moments to feel like they all belong there and, and they do a really good job of advancing just enough plots at a time Absolutely. it helped that they had like you know half a dozen books to do it in. Yeah. <laughs> that's also true oh man well steve this has been a fantastic hour and change uh final question uh before we let you go how can people follow you online and keep up with uh every x-men 92 and archer and armstrong forever at spider ham and everything else that you have going on yeah folks can follow me at steve underscore fox and that's f-o-x-e and i also keep my website stevefox.com very updated with with all my upcoming books it's often where stuff debuts uh quietly because you know amazon loads covers in like months before things are actually announced mm-hmm. so like spider ham 2 was sitting on there for like four months before we ever tweeted about it right, well, steve thank you for coming back on the show thank you for having me it was a blast that's it for this week's show as a reminder wmqna is part of comics xf where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast battle of the atom chris is on infinite earths and bat chat with matt and will co-hosted by matt lazowitz and our bud will nevin Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks, A $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLast1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Sentry was apparently part of Combo Man. WMQA. <laughs>